0: Nehemiah, and today we will finish chapter nine. Of Nehemiah, looking at verses thirty-two through thirty-eight, and it's been two weeks since I've been here in the pulpit, and hence two weeks since uh, we've looked at the earlier parts of chapter nine. So I want us to do just something of a quick review to kind of bring us up to speed of what we have considered here so far, if looking back at the early part of chapter 9, we see that the, the Levites, those appointed leaders of God, have led the congregation in a time of confession and worship. We saw back in, in chapter 9, verse 3, it says that while they stood in their place, they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God, and for a fourth of the day, or three hours, for another fourth they confessed and they worshipped the Lord their God. And so what's given to us in... in um, verses five and following is some portion of that confession and worship that was offered unto the Lord their God. And in breaking down the, the sections beginning there with chapter five verse five and following, we considered four weeks ago of just the greatness of God. Now he's revealed his greatness to us in creation. As we look at the works of creation, we've seen his greatness revealed to us in his covenant that he made with Abraham. And we've seen His greatness revealed to us in the compassion, in the dealing of his pe- dealing with His people, and the, the kindness that He's demonstrated toward the people of God while they were in great streets, often suffering great pain at the hand of, of those who are the enemies of God. And then, three weeks ago, we considered just the expressions of the compassion that God demonstrates, that God's compassion has revealed to us in our sin. God's not dealt with us according to those things that we deserve. He's revealed to us as one who is a God of forgiveness, who is gracious, and one who is compassionate. And we saw in regard to just our daily sustenance that God gives those things, those provisions that we need, that you know we're glad that He doesn't provide for us in this day or this week according to what we deserve or according to the way that we've acted. But it rains upon the just and the unjust. And we saw how even in our suffering that there is the compassion of God. And looking through the, the way that the people of God suffered because of their sin. And yet God used that to bring these people back to Him. Back to a time of confession. So chapter 9 verses 5 through 31 as we've considered in, in recent weeks. Is certainly a wonderful expression of of praise. And a wonderful expression of blessing. Speaking well of the Lord. Wonderful Expression of worship. But to what end? You know what, Where does this go to? And what's the connection as these people have been con- compelled in considering the greatness and the glory of God as they've been led in this time of worship and praise by the Levites? What's the connection in considering the glory of God as He has revealed Himself in history and to our world today? And to my world. And even as the people of Nehemiah's day. They've considered much of the greatness of God. And the glory of God revealed in history before them. But what's the connection of this God of history? To their world. To their day. To their life. Well let's look and beginning in verse 32 this morning. A fitting response by the people here. Again, led in this worship by, by the Levites. Verse 32. Now, therefore. So there's something of the transition here. That, that word therefore revealing to us. There's a, there's a changing of the flow here. A changing of the thought here. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who does keep covenant and loving kindness... Do not let all the hardships seem insignificant before thee. Which has come upon us. Our kings. Our princes. Our priests. Our prophets. Our fathers. And on all the people. For the days of the kings of Assyria. are from the days of the kings of Assyria. To this day. However. You are just. In all that has come upon us. For you have dealt faithfully. But we have acted wickedly. For our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your admonitions with which you admonish them. But they, in their own kingdom, with thy great goodness, which you did give them, with the broad and rich land which you did set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their evil deeds. And behold, we are slaves today. And as to the land which you gave to our fathers to eat of, its fruit, its bounty, behold, we are slaves on it. And this abundant produce is for the kings, whom you have set over us because of our sins. They also rule over our bodies and over our cattle as they please. So we are in great distress. Now because of all this, we are making an agreement in writing. And on the sealed document are the names of our leaders, our Levites, and our priest. And actually you look into chapter 10 and you see the list there of the names of those who have signed on here. Now, one thing I've come to realize in our study here of, of chapter 9, and beginning with verse 5 and following there, now there's... There's great profit in studying such a passage of fears because it compels us as it's thrust before us as people who are thinking upon God and the greatness of God and the glory of God. You know, we do well just to go and to meditate on such passages, and even as we saw something of a parallel in Neil's reading this morning in Psalm one oh six, just to read those passages that com- passages of Scripture that compel our thinking to go Godward. To think of Him. To think of his glory, to think of what he has done, to think of the way that he has revealed himself to us. And what a wonderful consideration of the greatness and the glory and the grace of God we've seen in these verses. But I want to present to you this morning a question What, what do you do with a God like that? What do you do with a God like that? A God that's been revealed in, the, in the, back in the beginning of verse 5 as one of, of Creator. What do you do with a God like that? One who is, who is great and is awesome. What do you do with a God like that? He reveals His glory and His creative work. He reveals His grace and His covenants. You see two sides of this God. That there's a, there's a greatness and there's, there's a side of Him that compels us to, to move with, with slowness and to, with silence and fear and trembling. Yet, there's the other side that we see His grace. We see His mercy and we see His compassion. What do you do with a God like that? Well, the fact of the matter is God has revealed to us both His glory and His grace. He's revealed both aspects of His nature. So we must respond. We must respond to Him considering both aspects. Considering His glory and yet at the same time considering His grace, His mercy, and His compassion here. And I want us to look at what I, what I think is given to us in our text here of how this people responded. To this God that they've, that they've praised and they've worshipped and they've, they've spoke so well of and so highly of. And even in the context of confessing their own sin and the sin to their father. How do they respond? What do they do with a God like this? Well, first thing we see that they take hold. They take hold of this God. See, much again has been made of God's greatness in verses 5 through 31. But we're to a point of transition here in verse 32. That word, therefore, or in light of what we've considered in these previous verses, as a result of what truth that we've considered, in light of the fact that God is as glorious as He is, in light of the fact that God is as gracious as He is, what do you do with a God like that? Well, this is the people that they take hold of this God. We'll come here in verse 32 to the first petition there've been no request made of God in the, up to this point so far the first petition that they come and they bring this morning is this in verse 32 do not let all the hardship which has come upon us seem insignificant before you that's it in this lengthy chapter this lengthy time of worship and praise this is the one t- one petition much blessing much considering of God, little in the way of asking. Let me just chase a rabbit. <laughs> now doesn't that tell us something about our prayer? I just have to confess that many times that, that I, when, when I'm directed in prayer that many times I'm focused upon my list. I'm focused upon my needs. I'm focused upon those things that I would ask of God. And listen, He is our Father. Those things are right and those things are good. But let me see that the pattern we have here that there's much of God, much of God here, and I'm not saying that we should not ask because I think the Scripture makes clear that we have the freedom as the children of God to come and we ask things of our Father. But I'm also saying this, the pattern that's given to us in Scripture is that we come and we we have an awareness of who God is. So we come to this God who is glorious as revealed to us in verse 32. Now therefore our God, what do they say? The great, the mighty, the awesome God. You know, that Based on why? Why are they saying these words? That He's great and that He's mighty and He's awesome. Because this is the way that God has revealed Himself. And even if we look back at verse number 6 of this same chapter, this is where they started. You alone are the Lord. You've made the heavens, the heavens of heavens, with all the hosts, the earth and all that's on it the and all that's in them. You give life to all of them and the heavenly host bowed down before you. This God, He is the one they're speaking of in verse 32. He is great. He is mighty. He is awesome. Listen. The one who creates as our God, the God of the Scripture, creates. The one who creates in that way. He is great. He is mighty he is awesome he is one who by the word of his power by the words that come forth he speaks things that did not exist into existence that's pretty impressive that's pretty awesome that's pretty great and if there is a god who can create as god has created what can he not do if He can do this, if He can create something from nothing by the word of His power, as the book of Hebrews tells us, what is it that this God cannot do? This God is glorious. This God is great. And so these people, they are considering that this God who is great and who is mighty and who is awesome, to take hold of Him. This God who is gracious, again in verse 32, who does keep covenant. And loving kindness. Again, thrusting us back to verses seven and eight, where we consider the covenant that God made with Abraham. What do we have there? It's a it's a gracious act of condescension for God to covenant with man. Why would He do such a thing? Does God need that? No. The man needs man needs God. So God condescends in His grace and His mercy and He enters into covenant with man and He is revealed to us back in verse 17 as as the, they're exhorted in their consideration of God. In verse 17, what do they say? That you're a God of forgiveness. You are gracious and compassionate. A God who is gracious. What do you do with a God like that? <laughs> well... You do what they did. You take hold of Him. We say, what do you mean they took hold of Him? Why are you saying that? Well, look at verse 32. I want to focus on two words. Now, therefore, our God. Our God. See, they've been considering this great God of creation. They've been considering this God who who spoke and the worlds came into existence. All of the all that we see, and even that which is unseen, God created. They've been considering this God of the covenant of their forefather Abraham. But it's one thing to see the God who is at work in history, and then another thing to take to speak of that God and to take hold of that God and say, This God, this God who is glorious, this God who is gracious, this God is my God, this God is our God that's what I mean when I say to take hold of him it's to own him as yours not ownership in the sense of like I own a car or I own a house but ownership in the sense of this is our country. I'm a part of this it's not ownership of possession it's ownership of recognizing that the proper relationship of of the creator of the creature to his creator. So to say that this God is my God in light of what they've considered in the previous verses is very simply to take our place before Him and say this God, as mysterious, as great, as glorious, and even as gracious as He is, He is my God. I mean, folks, He is the true and the living God. He is. You can't ignore Him in spite of the fact that many people do. You can't replace Him, in spite of the fact that many people try. You've got to deal with Him. The ultimate reality of life is God Himself. And if God is who the Scripture says to us, we've got to deal with Him on His terms. So to come and to say... Our God, as they're brought to here in verse 32, is simply to say, Lord, we acknowledge You that You are God. We are Your people. We are Yours by right of creation. We are Yours by the work of redemption. We claim You're our God. You are God. And we lay hold of You. It's to consider the biblical revelation of the nature of God, and even with our fear, and even with our Questions and even with the mystery the lies of lies that we still seize hold of it. It's interesting with children what lessons of where lessons of theology may come to us. One of the favorites in our home over the years has been the video of the Jungle Book. <laughs> I don't think I'd ever watched the Jungle Book until we had children. It's been around a while, but I didn't watch it. Now that we have children I've watched it on numerous occasions. And if you know the story of of the Jungle Book, of course there's Mowgli, the the boy who's been raised and he's supposed to be going back to the to the man village but there's this friend Baloo, the bear, the bubbling bumbling bear who wants to befriend and friend him and keep him there within the jungle. And the arch enemy of all is the tiger Shere Khan. And as you come to the end, near the end of the the Jungle Book, the story there's a point where Shere Khan, he is trying to kill the man-child Mowgli because he hates mankind. And, and so he's finally got to a point where he's about to get him and then Mowgli is assisted. And of course one of those who comes is Baloo, this bumbling bear. And there's one point where Shere Khan is running and here is Baloo and he's holding on to his tail. And so he is there. He finally gets Mowgli cared for and then so those who have been assisting in this in this battle against Shere Khan, they they yell to to uh, baloo they say let go let go and as he's being pulled around holding on to this tiger's tail and baloo's reply is let go he said the other end of this thing has teeth and you know that's something of how it is with god there's a sense in when we we look at the greatness and the glory of god and to say, Lord, I've got to take hold of You. I've got to lay hold of You as the Lord and the God. And there's fear in my heart. But the other side is, if I would disregard You and ignore You that there is nothing but the fierce teeth of Your wrath to experience. And so, I'm not greatly comfortable with either side. But I choose the side that You've revealed Yourself as a God of Scripture. And I come to You and I bow before You as God. That's I experience the other side. Your wrath. You know, this is a God who is great and is awesome, yet these people, they they dare to say, therefore, our God. You know, one of the ways that that God identified Himself, and even Christ spoke of, that He identified Himself, I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. That's who I am. There should be a great sense of fear on one side as we we consider the greatness and the glory of God, but folks, lest we be deceived, if we do not lay hold of God, if we do not take hold of God for who he is, we will experience his wrath for who he is. So we take hold of this God who is great, who is glorious, and who is at the same time gracious, this God that C. S. Lewis has spoken of in, in the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, in the Christ figure thereof, this God who is He's not safe, but he's good. He's not safe, but he's good. We take hold of him. It's called to us to develop a solidly biblical theology of God that, that moves us, that moves us to awe, that moves us to worship, to that moves us to wonder of the greatness and the glory of God, to accept the biblical revelation to us of who God is. And there's much I don't understand, but you are God and you are the God that I will serve. The true and the living God. We need to take hold of this God. Take hold of Him. Say it's fierce. He's he's glorious. He is awesome. But we take hold of him for who he is. Take hold of him. We also see that we must take heed. Take heed. Yes, this is a glorious God who offers fellowship, but it is not something that is to be lightly regarded. And the sins of the people here, as they talk about in verses 33 and following, however, you are just in all that's come upon us. You have dealt faithfully. We have acted wickedly. Our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our fathers, they've not kept your law. They've not paid attention to your commandments and your admonitions which with you admonished us. They and their great kingdom with your goodness which you just give them. With the broad and rich land which you set before them. That did not serve you or turn from their evil deeds. The sins of the people have been great. But in need to understand as we've considered much of the compassion, the mercy and the grace of God. That within that great flood of God's mercy. And that great flood that, that is poured out of His grace and His forgiveness. One also finds within it the stream of God's justice and his faithfulness. God is just. And God is faithful. And that's what they appeal to there in verse 33. However, you are just. You do those things which are right. There's no question about the justice of God. You do those things which are right. And all that's come upon us, you have dealt faithfully. See, the leaders, as they recall this truth to them, there's no claim of injustice on God's part. Why is this happening to us? It was the sins of our fathers. What's it got to do with us? Even as we, as Neil read in Psalm 106 this morning, we have sinned with our fathers. We are guilty. And what's come upon us as a people, the hardship, it's just of God. In fact, if anything, it's, we have still received much better than we deserve. Say, you have dealt faithfully. You see, here's the second edge of God's covenant with His people. God's covenant with His people was one of great blessing. Was it not? The promise of of great blessing that would be given upon them if they walk with the Lord. They walk in obedience to His commands. But the other side of that was this. There was also the promise of consequences if they did not. And so you have in the book of Deuteronomy where there's the, the recounting of the covenant of God. It says, choose life. Choose life. Why will you die? So the second edge of God's faithfulness to His covenant is this. If you are faithful to His word, to His his admonition, to His direction, blessing of God. If you are unfaithful, if you are unfaithful, you choose death. There is the consequence that comes upon the people of God. And so the plight that has come upon the people of God is only that which He said would occur. It should have been no surprise. And we we'll see something of the irony of the plight here. Look in verse thirty-five. It says, "But they, and they're speaking of the fathers, they in their own kingdom, with thy great goodness, which you did give them, you gave them these things." In verse thirty-seven, and its abundance produce is for the kings, whom what? Whom God has, whom you have set over us. You gave our fathers these great kingdoms, but now, as a result of sin, you have given us these kings who make us slaves. Verse 35, the last part, they did not serve you or turn from their evil deeds. In verse 36, twice the comment is made, we are slaves. Who will you serve? Who will you serve? You know, that's the real issue. They wouldn't serve God, so they became slaves. We'll not serve God. If you don't have God rule over you, let me tell you, you will be a slave to something else. You will be a slave to sin. You'll be a slave to your own appetites, to your own passions. You will not be free if you reject the sovereign rule of God. You will be a slave ultimately to Satan. So there's something of an irony here that they refused to to yield to the sovereign rule of God and so they became enslaved to that which destroys. Isn't that been our experience? Yeah. We become slaves to something. Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 6. Turn with me very quickly. Romans chapter 6. Verses 15 and following. Romans chapter 6. Begin in verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are no longer under law, but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourself to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? There's your two choices. There's your choices. You're going to be a servant and a slave to someone today. Be it yourself and your sin and Satan or be it God. Verse 17, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members... As slaves to righteousness resulting in sanctification. You were the slaves of sin. Now you're a slave to righteousness. What a wonderful slavery. The one we but one we so often kick against, is it not? We kick against it. So you see the irony of their plight. Their plight. They wouldn't serve, and so they were compelled to serve another. Listen, folks, take heed. Take heed. Take heed. Lest we trifle with sin. If there's one thing that should be clear in the message of Scripture, that sin is not something which we take lightly. God's grace, God's compassion, and His love for His people includes His corrective hand. There's much within our life, much within our hearts to address in regards to sin. Simply as a fallen race, you know, I think it was John Calvin who says that no man knows one one thousandth of his sin. We don't begin to know the depths of the of the sin that lies within us within our hearts. But let's be, let let's be certain of this. Let's not be those who add to that by going headstrong into willful sin. We've got enough to deal with. With our, with our rotten nature. Why add to it with, I'm going to choose this sin? You know, we're wicked enough to be thoughtless and carefree regarding God's law. And how much worse to flaunt before the face of God in a spirit and attitude of rebellion and defiance and willful sinning? Take heed. Take heed this God. Take heed of Him. His justice, His justice is true. And it comes. And sin is meted out. And how can we how can we stand with Him? Only because we know that our sins are forgiven because of the, the righteousness of Christ. Take heed of this God. And finally, we take heart. Take heart. The people here took heart. See, God has done something very kind to us, for us. God has shown His hand. And I mean that if you ever played cards, you know the expression, to show your hand. God's shown His hand. He's made a covenant. And He's full of compassion. Full of mercy. Take heart. Take heart, dear saints of God, in this God who is great and who is glorious. In contradiction to wickedness, God is faithful. We've seen that in verse 33. In the midst of rebellion, God has been good. Look down to verse 35. But they, they in their own kingdom. What kingdom? The kingdom that God had placed them in. He had given to them. They in their own kingdom with your great goodness which you did give them. Here's the picture. They're, they're living it up. They're living high on the hog, the, receiving the goods and the benefits of being the people of God because God has placed His favor upon them. He is blessing them. They have the kingdom, their nation, and the goodness of God is all around them. It's being demonstrated to them with the broad and the rich land which you, you gave before them, and they did not serve you or turn from their evil deeds in the midst of such wickedness. Rebellion. God has been good. Take heart, dear saints. Take heart in our request. You know, these were people who as they get to this point in this time of worship and praise, they bring that one request. Do not let the hardship seem insignificant to you. See this. See this hardship that has come upon us as a matter of great importance, a matter of great significance significance, and something that you need to respond to, God. Be moved by this. See it as an issue to be considered in the dispensing of your mercy. No, we're not saying that we've that we've received enough hardship and difficulty to pay for our sins. No, we're not saying that at all. We're just saying, Lord, consider the weight of the hardship that we are experiencing when you are dispensing your mercy anew. And dispense it afresh and new upon us. So we can come with our request to the throne of grace and we can take heart that God is one who hears us because God is a God of compassion that when we hurt, that God knows that pain. He's moved. Take heart in our response. Verse 38. Now because of all this, we are making an agreement in writing. And on the sealed document are the names of our leaders, our Levites and our priest. You know, the people could have been compelled. We've considered the greatness and the glory of God and say, either this God will have nothing to do with us anyway, or we can't have anything to do with Him. But there are people who have taken heart. And so they respond. And their response is, "Then, because of all this, we are coming, we are making an agreement in writing. What's, what is this? It's something along the lines of a covenant renewal. We are renewing our part. God's been faithful on His part. We have broken ours. But we're coming and we're renewing. We're renewing our part in this covenant with God and signing our names to this to this document. The names of our leaders and the Levites and our priests. And to be encouraged that that God receives that. That God cares for that. You know, when a person understands, when a person sees that that God is who He is, we've come and we've made an agreement. Our agreement was this: Lord, I come in repentance, and I come in faith, and I yield myself to Jesus Christ. That's our agreement, and I need Your grace. I need your power. I'm not coming with any promises to do anything for you. God, you get me this and I. No promises. I come with nothing. I come, Lord, in absolute need of you and absolute dependence upon you. That's our agreement. Lord, it's, it's all upon you. And you know that. So we come in repentance. You know, you can look at this response and like, say, ah, we made business here, you can look at this and say, you know, what is this in the eyes of God? Unless we th- think that our response of repentance and our response of faith is something that's impressive to God, it's not. Because if it's, if it's acceptable for Him, it is His gift to us. Simply in light of what is right and what is proper as the people of God. And how God has graciously and mercifully dealt with His people. The people respond in this matter. This is simply what we ought to do. It's right. It's right that I come to God in repentance. It's right that I come to Christ in faith. That's right. Because I've renounced Him and He is still Lord of all things. It's right that I do that. Thankfully, the door of repentance is always open. God's way is always open. Take heart. Say, <laughs> I've, I've moved so far from God or I'm so far removed from God. How, how can I ever be, be brought and expect to have any measure of a relationship with God? Take heart. He grants to us. It's His good pleasure to grant to us those gifts of repentance, faith, to come and to embrace God the righteousness, the perfections of Christ so that all your sin that has once served to do nothing but separate you from God is removed. And the righteousness of Christ has become yours. Take heart. God invites us. What do you do with a God like this? We do take hold of Him for who He is. Questions, fears, but He's God. God. So I've got, to, I've got to acknowledge Him and I've got to own Him as my God. Take heed. Don't trifle with sin. Learn the lessons of the faithfulness and of the righteousness and the justice of God. Learn the lessons of, of sin, that the play with sin is simply to be cast into slavery. But take heart. Take heart in this God. He welcomes you to come. The door is Open come in repentance and faith. You say, oh, I've done that. What now? You're a believer? You're still repenting. And you're still believing. You're still looking anew and afresh to Christ. That's what you do with a God like this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we we respond in such a wide variety of ways, the spectrum of responses many times that there are those who are, are fearful in any degree of approaching some who are presumptuous. But Lord, we know that the proper response is that which is originated by You in our hearts, and that is, Lord, that we come with fear and trembling, but we come believing. And we know that that is the testimony of Your work in our hearts. I pray for those here this morning. Lord, we confess that we need to consider something of your greatness. (coughs) And we need to take hold of the God of Scripture, not the God of our imaginations, not the God of what we would like, the true and the living God, to take heed of your warnings against sin. But to take heart. That you invite us to come. Lord, apply your truth to each heart here today as you see fit, as you know appropriate. We pray in Christ's name.